As we come back this morning, we are going to look at how different cultures face suffering as titled on the screen here. So hopefully that is no shock at all. And we're going to look at how cultures and religions have equipped its people um, in how to understand uh, their suffering and, and how to face it rightly. So as we look at these different cultures and religions of suffering here this morning, our goal is to understand where they are right and where they are also wrong. It is also my hope that in seeing these other viewpoints, we'll see the uniqueness of Christianity and in seeing Christianity uh, compare it with these other views that we are looking at here this morning. So please know that this is not an in-depth study on cultures or, or religions, okay? We got 45 minutes here. We're not going to do that. So if anything, I'm oversimplifying these, these viewpoints. Be, be aware of that. I'm not nuancing, and I'm sure there are nuances to all of these views. So this is just a, a broad sweep. So if you're like, well, that's not what I know about that religion or, or that view, that's okay. You're probably right. Um, it's probably some nuanced form that I'm not hitting on here. So as far as the order goes then for our class, uh, we'll view some different cultural perspectives on suffering, and we'll highlight our own secular culture and how our culture deals with suffering. And then we'll end the class by then comparing Christianity to the cultures of suffering that we've observed here this morning. <clears throat> I also want to remind you that this class will be a bit more technical in nature. And so as I stated last week, if you're looking for like an immediate, you know, fix for the suffering I'm going through right here today, now, I'm going to suggest to you that today's class isn't designed for you. I don't have you in mind in this class. I want to help you, and we will help you in the classes to come. And so just again, the outline of where we're heading, we're, we're trying to understand suffering in the first two weeks here on a broad level across the board. And then in, in weeks three and four next week in the following, we'll, we'll aim to look at it from the scriptures and what the Bible has to say. And then if you're looking for those, those fixes, how do I deal with it practically? That'll be weeks five through seven. So no, we're, we're, we're working our way towards it. I haven't forgotten about those people, uh, but just know that this is the way we're going. And, and once more, I just want to repeat that these, these classes are based off the book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. So know that these thoughts that I have here are not original to me. I, di I didn't come up with it. I'm drawing from, from him. So if it's helpful at all, and you want more, you can pick up his book, you can read it, and it is a great resource uh, for walking, really, through suffering and understanding it on a broad level, and then how to face it practically. So any, any questions before we dive into today's class on suffering? All right, seeing none, we'll continue on. Different cultures have faced evil and adversity for many, many hundreds of years. I think we can all agree on that. And as a result, different ideas have developed over time through various cultures, different regions, about how to help its people face suffering well. How do they help its people face suffering well? Max Scheller, a social theorist, argues that every society, when faced with suffering, has given its members instructions to encounter suffering correctly, to suffer properly, or to move suffering to another plane altogether. 
And so we'll see in every culture, there is some sort of method, some sort of training that occurs to help those who are members of it deal with grief, pain, and loss. But it's interesting to note that when these social theorists have explored these cultures, that our, our Western culture is one of the worst and weakest in history at teaching our members how to deal with suffering on a practical level. Our Western culture is horrible, they find, at giving meaning and purpose to sufferings that we will inevitably face. And this, they find, is incredibly problematic because as human beings, one of our inner compulsions is to understand the world as meaningful and, and to take a position towards it. And a large element of this includes how we deal with our suffering. And so when no meaning for suffering is given, uh, they say the culture loses its credibility entirely. It, it can't be trusted. It can't be sustainable. And eventually society will crumble in upon itself or it'll turn to a different culture altogether for help and suffering. As tragedies and sufferings are on the rise, even in our own country and all around us, I think what we are beginning to see now more than ever are people really going outside of our culture to other cultures to provide meaningful answer to the problem of suffering that resides deeply in all of us. And so you'll see people in, in the newspaper articles or on TV, they'll go to Buddhism or, or they'll go to this idea of how suffering can make you stronger, which is really stoic in nature. Or still others look to Hinduism or Confucianism, or, or some will hopefully look to Christianity, as we have answers as well. And the responses that we see to suffering often show that our own culture, really, again, gives people no tools at all with how to handle tragedy. And so people are left to fend for themselves from other cultures. So the result is that people around us, more than ever before, people that maybe you know at your workplace, they are just shocked. They are just completely undone when any level of suffering hits them. And this is especially troubling when you consider that our ancestors, when we look back hundreds of years ago, they faced suffering far better than we ever did in our society here today. And they faced suffering that was incalculable compared to what we go through today. So consider that in medieval Europe, approximately one out of every five infants died before their first birthday. And only half of all children survived to the age of 10. And so in the medieval times, the average family buried half of their children before the age of 10. Like half of them. So if that's for us today, half of your children, if you have any, are already dead, gone, and buried. And life for those who went before us was filled with other types of suffering and far more pain than ours. And yet again, as these social theorists remark, we have a number of diaries, journals, and historical documents that reveal how they took all of that hardship far better than us in our society today. One scholar of ancient Northern European history observed how unnerving it is for modern readers to see how much more unafraid people 1,500 years ago were in the face of loss, violence, suffering, and death. Another scholar said that while we were, are taken aback by the cruelty we see in our ancestors, 
They would, if they could see us, be equally shocked by our softness, worldliness, and timidity. So we are far worse than past generations in dealing with suffering today. But not only are we weaker by wide consensus, but we are also weaker than other people today in other parts of the world in regards to our suffering. Dr. Brand, a pioneering orthopedic surgeon in the treatment of leprosy, spent the first half of his medical career in India, and then he spent the last half of his medical career in the US. And with this experience, he writes, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had ever previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. And so this brings us to a question, why is it that we are so ill-equipped as a society to deal with suffering compared to generations in the past and other cultures around the world? And the short answer that Keller gives is that other cultures have provided a superior answer to the question, what is the purpose of human life? Some cultures say to live a good life and so escape the cycle of karma. Some have said enlightenment, recognizing the oneness of all things and the attainment of tranquility. Others have said it's to live a life of virtue, nobility, and honor. And then there are those who teach that the ultimate purpose of life is to go to heaven and be with God forever and the ones you love. But with all of these different answers that other cultures have given to this, this great question, what is the purpose of human life? In every one of these worldviews answers, they give an answer or a purpose where suffering can exist. Suffering can, despite its painfulness, be an important means of actually achieving your purpose in life. And so if this is your purpose in life, suffering can help you gain and achieve the end, what you're living for and what you're striving for. Now, now take that in contrast with our Western society. In our modern Western culture, we are very different in our answer to this question. The meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. That is like the purpose of life in the USA. But with this framework, with that kind of answer to that grand question, suffering can have no meaningful part whatsoever. Suffering is pointless. It, it, it shouldn't even exist at that point. It's an interruption to what you're trying to achieve in life. And so it can't have any meaningful part of your story. It can't have any meaningful part of achieving your end. So this means that when facing unavoidable suffering, secular people are quite often undone. Or, more often than not, they try to smuggle in resources from other cultures and religions. They go to views of life such as karma, Buddhism, Greek Stoicism, or Christianity, even though they don't line up with their beliefs about the nature of the universe. So then this brings us 
to the different cultural views on suffering that we often turn to. But any questions so far on what we've covered? Feel free to ask as we continue on here, but just know I'm gonna keep chugging along. There is a lot of information here, but, so, but feel free to stop me as we, we continue. at then the moralistic view and how this view seeks to help its sufferers. Some cultures have taught that suffering is primarily a result of people failing to live rightly. Uh, there are many, many variations on this view, but many societies believe that if you abide by the moral order of the culture and by your God or God's plural, your life will go well. Bad, second, bad circumstances that come upon you then are simply just a wake-up call, that you just need to turn your life around. You need to get your act together. And one of the purest forms of this doctrine is karma, the view that every soul is reincarnated, reincarnated over and over and over again, and to each new life the soul brings from its past all their deeds, whether good or bad, along with its effects. So again, if you are suffering now, it's because you did something bad in the past. But if you face the evils you did in your past life, and you now instead live with virtue and courage and love, your future life will be better. So in this view, no one gets away with anything, and everything comes with a price. And so that is why there is suffering from this point of view. Your goal then is to face your sufferings rightly, with moral virtue, and having atoned for all of your sins, then by, uh, be released into bliss of eternity, as they say. Second, there is the self-transcendent view. Buddhism would be one that we would tie closely to this view. Instead of suffering from past deeds, suffering instead comes from unfulfilled desires and the illusions of life. And, and the unfulfilled desires are the result of the illusion that we are individual selves. So like the ancient Greek Stoics, Buddha taught that the solution to suffering is the extinguishing of desire through a change of consciousness. And so from this point of view, we must detach our hearts from transitory material things across the board. And as we detach from desires, we achieve a calmness of the soul and, and, and then we are freed to a higher plane. So again, in this worldview, prevalent really in Eastern societies, suffering is mitigated because it can't harm the real you. Suffering is mitigated because you live on in your children and your people. Your identity is one with those around you. Third, some societies deal with suffering with a high view of fate and destiny. Life circumstances are seen as ordered, again, by fate, by destiny. There's nothing you can do about it. Whether that's the stars in the sky or supernatural forces or the doom of the gods or, as in Islam, the inscrutable will of Allah, your fate and destiny is set in stone, and again, there's nothing you can do about it. And so the best course of action in this view is to reconcile your soul with this reality. And those who are wise, those who are the most noble of character, do this. 
So the older pagan cultures of Europe especially held to this view of suffering, and many of them believed that at the end of time, <clears throat> the gods and heroes would all be killed by giants and, and monsters in the tragic battle of Ragnarok. Um, if you're into Marvel films at all, you know, those superhero things, there's the Thor Ragnarok film out there, which is kind of covering a little bit of this. And spoiler alert, you know, he's trying to stop the inevitable destruction of Asgard in the end, but it's been destined to happen. And, and so in the end, it gets destroyed, um, just as fate had promised. But despite certain doom, in these societies, the highest virtue was to stand one's ground honorably in the face of hopeless odds. And, and so this is how you deal with suffering. It's coming. It's inevitable. It's, it's fated to happen. And all you can do is to stand honorably against it in the face of hopeless odds. And so this would lead to the most lasting glory possible. This type of behavior would lead you to be living on in, in legends of past and song. And so the greatest heroes of these cultures were often strong and courageous, but they were also often sad because certain doom was upon them. The same could also be said of Islam as well. One of the central requirements of righteousness is to surrender to God's mysterious will without question, no matter what it might bring you. So no matter what pain, suffering, or grief might avail you, you must endure bravely without question. So what ties these, these views together then is submitting to a difficult divine fate without complaint or compromise. And this is the highest virtue and therefore a great way to endure suffering. Finally, here there is the dualistic view of the world. And these religions and these societies don't see the world under the full control of the fate of God, but rather as a battleground between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. Injustice Sin and pain are present in the world because of evil, satanic powers. Sufferers, then, are seen as casualties of war caught up in this great cosmic battle. Sufferers, in this view, are to view themselves as victims in this battle with evil. And they hope, the hope that they have, is that good will eventually triumph over evil. Some explicit forms of this view would be Persian Zoroastrianism, which believed that a savior would come at the end of time to bring about a final re renovation of everything. But then there are also less explicit forms of dualism, even in our own culture, such as some Marxist theories, which also see the forces of good overcoming evil in the end as they rise up. So as we look at these four approaches in a nutshell, they might seem to be at odds with each other in their solution for suffering. The self-transcendent view calls its sufferers to think differently. This is how you are to handle it. Think differently. Detach yourself from desires. The moralistic culture calls you to live differently. You're bringing suffering upon yourself because you're not living rightly. And then, of course, you have the fatalistic cultures. It's already fated to happen, so embrace it. Stand courageously and defiantly against great odds. 
And then the dualistic culture really puts their hope in the future, when the good overcomes the evil. But while these views are different, and they seem to be very different, there is something that is, is unifying them kind of together. And that is the reality that all of them tell you that suffering should not be a surprise. Suffering is not a surprise to them at all. It's a necessary part of human existence. Sufferers are also told that it can actually help you achieve your main purpose in life, whether it's spiritual growth or mastery over oneself or achievement of honor or the promotion of good. And last, they are told that the key to rising and achieving in suffering is something that they must take responsibility to do. They must put themselves into a right relationship with suffering and, and so own it and take responsibility for it. So these traditional cultures that we just covered inevitably are, see life through the lens of suffering. And the prescriptions for suffering mainly have to do with internal work. They call for different forms of confession or purification, spiritual growth and strengthening, and a right relationship to others and self and God. But again, if suffering is faced rightly, it can bring about great good. So to reiterate once more, here is a chart kind of putting this all together, hopefully for you, given by Keller. So we have moralistic on the left. Cause of suffering, wrongdoing, right? So the response, do good, do better. And the resolution, eternal bliss. Self-transcendent view, cause of suffering, illusion, over-attachment of desire. And so your response, detach from those desires. Resolution, enlightenment. Fatalistic culture, cause of suffering, destiny, fate, it's coming. So what do you do? You endure. You face it bravely. And the resolution, glory and honor, living on in legends forevermore. Dualism, cosmic conflict between good and evil. The response, purified faithfulness. You endure as much as you can, and you hope that in the end, that the light triumphs over the darkness. So that was a lot, and it was oversimplified in many different ways here, but any questions or comments before we continue on here? Rich. <laughs> you're, you're going to the end already. We're not at the end yet, but yes, yeah. Yeah, you're like, wait, that sounds a lot like what we believe, right? There's something there. There's something there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good, good. No, thank you, Rich. Is there any, are you all feeling that a little bit? Or is that just, okay, good. And it's good to know that when we are interacting with others of different belief systems, there's some common ground there. You know, we actually, I think, agree on that. But from this angle and this point of view. So I think it's good to not just say, well, your religion is completely wrong. Find some common ground to work with. Because there is, in essence, really, truths of Christianity in these worlds. But they're half-truths. And that's what we have to recognize. They're not full truths. Okay. Traditional views. We haven't covered the Western culture view. Because that's what we're living in every day here. 
So we'll, we'll now turn our attention here, if there are no more questions, to the Western approach to suffering. In contrast to these four traditional cultures, uh, the Western approach really stands apart from them because it sees the world not as material and spirit, but in purely naturalistic terms. So again, while these other views see, see matter and spirit, Western ideas and thinking don't have a category for the spirit realm whatsoever at all. So suffering cannot be the result of sin or any cosmic battle or any force such as fate determining our destinies. Western society then sees suffering simply as an accident. So while suffering is real, it is outside the realm of good and evil. Richard Dawkins in his book, River Out of Eden, a Darwinian view of life, portrays this view clearly when he writes, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. What we find in this quote, and really largely a secular culture, is a complete departure from every other view on suffering. While other views see evil as having some kind of purpose or punishment or a test or an opportunity to make sense out of it, in Dawkins' view here, the reason people struggle in the face of suffering is because they will not accept that it never has any purpose. So suffering in the Western point of view, completely senseless, completely meaningless. And in the face of suffering, to look to spiritual resources is infantile. Dawkins goes on to say that the truly adult view is that our life is as meaningful, as full, and wonderful as we choose to make it. In other words, you must create your own meaning and purpose within the confines of this material world. Now think about that for a moment. If you are to create your own purpose, your own meaning within the confines of only what you can see here, uh, there's only so much you can make your life really about. And it's going to be about some kind of comfort. Your life purpose is going to be about safety. It's going to be about pleasure. And, and your life model might be whoever dies with the most toys wins. We've seen that bumper sticker. But if this is your life purpose, which it largely is for the majority in our culture, then suffering gets in the way of it completely. Suffering either destroys you or puts your life goals in dire jeopardy. And as Dr. Paul Brand argues in the last chapter of his book, The Gift of Pain, is because the meaning of life in the United States is the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom that suffering is so traumatic for Americans. So as we, again, think of the other cultures we just spoke of, we realize that they make the highest purpose of life, moral virtue, enlightenment, honor, or, or faithfulness to the truth. And again, in these views, suffering 
plays an important role. However, we find again that in the Western culture, that has no place whatsoever. And this shallow purpose and meaning in life that our Western culture gives, again, you can't face suffering. And so that provides an opportunity for those who do have answers for those who are facing dire need. Well, because the culture doesn't really have much to give the sufferer, they then try to do two things with suffering. The first thing they try to do is manage and lessen the pain, whatever the price. And because of this, most professional services and resources offered to those suffering have moved away from talking about affliction to discussing stress. They no longer give people ways to endure adversity with patience, but instead use vocabulary drawn from business, psychology, and medicine to enable them to manage, reduce, and cope with stress, strain, and trauma. Sufferers are counseled to avoid negative thoughts and to buffer themselves off with with time off, exercise, and, and supportive relationships. And again, the primary focus is on controlling your responses, lessening the pain. And I want to be clear that not all of this is bad, okay? I'm not saying this is bad. Not all of this is bad. Some of it can be incredibly helpful and good, um, especially as I've seen many of these techniques help in the psych ward. But what Keller wants us to note here is the fundamental shift from learning and growing through suffering to now coping with it in the least damaging way possible. It's no longer about learning from suffering or growing through it, but coping and merely tolerating it. The second way they deal with suffering is to eliminate the cause of pain. That's the primary way they go about it. And so where other cultures see suffering as an inevitable part of the fabric of life, our culture has no such belief. Suffering always has a material cause, and therefore it can be fixed in theory. Suffering from the point, this point of view could be caused by, you know, unjust economic situations or social conditions, bad public policies, broken families, or just simply evil people. And so what they do then is they respond in outrage, confrontation. They go after the evil party, and they act to change the conditions since it is up to us alone. Now again, that's not all bad. For the Bible has a good deal to say about doing exactly that, rendering justice to the oppressed and not blindly sitting in it. But where older cultures sought ways to be edified by their sufferings by looking inside, Western people are different completely. They're outraged by their suffering, and they seek to change the things outside of themselves so that suffering can never, ever happen again. C.S. Lewis captures the difference between our culture and the traditional cultures of old well, saying, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For modernity, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. And the solution is technique. 
What results in our culture then is that sufferers are not told that their primary work is anything internal. It's not about making any adjustments. It's not about learning or growing. And it's never about moral responsibility. And to ever hint at moral responsibility would be considered blaming the victim, which is one of the main heresies within our Western culture at large. So the response to suffering then is always relegated to experts, whether pain management, psychological or medical treatment, or changes to the law or, or public policy. And so with this then, we can add secularism as a fifth block. What is the cause of suffering? Well, it's all an accident. It's random completely. What is our response to suffering? Technique. Lessen the pain. Prescribe the, the, the lessening of pain to professionals and eliminate it at all costs. And the resolution? A better society together. <clears throat> so with all of these in place now, all these worldviews, and again, oversimplified perhaps. Ben? Yeah. They're not. Yeah, they're not. And that, that's a good point. I don't think Keller actually connected it to Epicureanism, but no, that's, that's good. Thank you. Thank you for doing that for us. Any, any other questions before we, we move on? Uh, ben is a philosopher major, philosophy major. So if you guys want to talk more about this, I, I plan to with them later on. Uh, please do. It's fun. All right. Christian perspective here. <clears throat> so we begin then to look at Christianity in comparison and contrast then with these other approaches. And again, in the words of social theorist Max Scheller, in his article, The Meaning of Suffering, he points out the uniqueness, really, of the Christian approach in contrast to these other ones. And on this, he says, the Christian teaching on suffering seems a complete reversal of attitude when compared to the interpretations of other cultures and religious systems. So, unlike karma or the moralistic view, suffering is unjust and it's disproportionately served. Life is simply unfair. People who live moral lives sometimes don't do well, and those who live poorly do better than others that are living well. And Christians readily acknowledge this in the story of Job very early on. But more than all of this, we see this in Jesus Christ. And we understand that if anyone deserved a good life for righteous living, it would have been him. And yet he did not get it. So again, unlike the moralistic or like karma, we believe that Christians, or that suffering is a result of, of more than just um, not living rightly. Unlike Buddhists, the second block there, which claim that suffering is an illusion, Christians claim that suffering is very, very real. We don't try to reinterpret suffering in clever terms because pain is pain and it is miserable. In Christianity, there is no minimizing of suffering in this way. And I think you don't have to look farther than the Garden of Gethsemane where you see Jesus becoming overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus was the opposite of tranquil in the face of suffering, and his anguish was so great that he had even drops of bloody sweat fall to the ground. 
He didn't detach his heart from the good things of life to achieve inner calm, but instead said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Unlike the fatalistic view up here, which is prevalent in shame and honor cultures, in Christianity, he says, there is none of the ancient arrogance, suffering against his own power to which others bear witness. Instead of the stoic endurance of high doom, the cry of the suffering creature resounds everywhere in Christianity, freely and harshly. And we see this most vividly on the cross itself. Christians, in contrast to fatalism, are encouraged to express their grief with cries and questions. And we see this all over the Psalms, and especially when Jesus wept with Mary and Martha at Lazarus' tomb. And unlike the dualistic view here, which has really some overlap with the moralistic view, Christians do not see suffering as a, as a means of working off your sinful debt. It does not teach that self-infliction makes one more spiritual or, or holy. The interpretation that suffering in of itself brings men nearer to God is far more Greek and Neoplatonic than it is Christian. And so where, where dualism divides the world into good and evil people, where suffering is the badge of virtue and, and the mark of moral superiority, Christianity, in the words of one, says that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And so in contrast to these view with their prominent ideas, the prominent idea of Christianity is grace. In Christ we have received forgiveness, love, adoption into God's family, and we realize that this grace is undeserved. It's free. And in this, it frees us from being proud of our suffering. So what then does Christianity prescribe for its sufferers compared to that of these other perspectives? Once more, just so that we, we don't miss this, in contrast to karma, suffering is unfair. In contrast to Buddhism, suffering is real. In contrast to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. And in contrast to secularism, suffering is meaningful. And so where Buddhism says, accept it, karma says, pay it, fatalism says, heroically endure it, and secularism says, avoid it or fix it, we realize that in Christianity, all of these remedies have an element of truth to it. Sufferers do need to stop loving material goods too much. We do, in a sense, need to become detached from loving things in an idolatrous way. And yes, the Bible does teach that, in general, suffering filled the world because the human race churned from God in the beginning. And so there's a bit of karma in the world that we live in. We are paying, for, in a sense, from the sins of Adam. And so in fatalism, there is the need to heroically endure suffering and not let it overthrow us. But we don't do it alone. We do it with the help of our God who dwells with us. And in, in secularism, they are right to warn us about being too accepting of conditions and factors that harm people that instead should be changed. So we are not to face suffering with too much passivity 
when it is possible for us to change real injustice being done today. So where these views contain part of a solution for the problem of suffering, they are not adequate in of themselves. Instead, as we read the scriptures through and through, we recognize the parts where they are right. And, and really, all of these find itself in the example and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It incorporates all of these insights into a coherent whole that transcends them masterfully. And so Christianity provides an answer that is far more nuanced and filled with hope for the sufferer than these other views. Scheller, in his essay, returns to his claim that Christianity is ultimately a reversal of all other views. He says, For the man of antiquity, the external world was happy and joyous, but the world's core was deeply sad and dark. Behind the cheerful surface of the world of so-called Mary and antiquity, there loomed chance and fate. But for the Christian, the external world is dark and full of suffering. But its core is nothing other than pure bliss and delight. So where the other cultures see day-to-day -day life and pleasures, behind all of it is darkness or illusion. But Christianity, again, sees this differently. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing coming sorrows, Christianity instead empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows and taste the coming joy. This is part of what we are going to do even today as we gather. We, we come to taste the joys of heaven, of the new earth, and we celebrate our hope in the risen Christ, who is the ultimate answer to the problem of suffering. Now, any, any questions here? That, again, I, I just realized I'm out of time, but questions as we close here. <laughs> I wasn't able to go into depth on any of these. But if there are, talk to Ben. No, I'm just kidding. You can talk with me. Um, and I'd be happy to, to go on. But as, as we see these worldviews, I, I do hope it equips us better to, to deal with suffering on a broader level and in so doing, see how Christianity is set apart from these other worldviews and incorporates really the truths that each of them have to offer us. If there are no more questions, then we'll go ahead and close with a word of prayer and then we can get ready for our morning service. Father, we are thankful for your goodness, your mercy to us. We are thankful for Jesus Christ, whom we worship above all, and that because of his suffering for us, we have hope we have life, we have purpose, we have meaning beyond ourselves. And that hope cannot be taken away from us because it is in the resurrected Messiah who defeated death and Satan for us. And because of this, we have a hope, a hope that propels us through sufferings and the uncertainties of life with joy and confidence and strength. Because just as Jesus conquered and overcame, so we will too as we are in Christ. So we ask towards this end that as we encounter sufferings, that we would do so well, as our hope is not in the things of this world, but in Christ alone, who is our hope and our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.